uh, Acts today, but if you want to open up to the last chapter of Luke, and, uh, and that's where we'll actually start, the last chapter of Luke, that's Luke 24, and, uh, and so as uh, some of you are turning there, will someone uh, pray for our time this morning? So, um, yeah, so Acts of the Apostles or Acts of the Holy Spirit, and both of them are going to function in, in the book as witnesses, as dual witnesses to the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so what we're going to do is kind of hope to develop a theology for understanding the book of Acts as it relates to the kingdom and uh, the role of the apostles and the Holy Spirit. And so I want to begin with an overview of the book of Acts. And in order to understand the book of Acts, it's helpful to, to understand there is this literary relationship between the book of Acts and the book of uh, Luke, uh, the gospel according to Luke. And so most scholars, most theologians believe those were written by the same author, that the physician Luke wrote both the gospel according to Luke and the book of Acts. The reason that we think so is because if you were to be in Acts 1-1, it would establish some sort of prequel He begins by talking about a previous letter that he has written. And again, most scholars think that is the gospel according uh, to Luke for the following reasons. First, because the two books are really stylistically and thematically very similar. The themes that are developed in the book of Luke tend to be the themes that are developed in the book of Acts. Even as uh, as we've been preaching through the book of Mark uh, over the past year or so, we've talked uh, a number of times about how each individual author of Scripture has their own unique nuances. So they're, they're, they're still presenting a faithful portrait of Jesus Christ, but they present it in different ways than the other authors. And so Matthew has different emphases, different things that he wants to really highlight uh, then Mark does, then Luke does, then John does, and so forth. And so a lot of the themes that we see uh, that are uniquely developed within Luke's gospel are going to be carried over into the book of Acts. For, for example, uh, Luke's uh, emphasis on generosity, Luke's emphasis on uh, the use, the stewardship of wealth for the sake of the kingdom, and uh, on and on. We could go. Both books are also dedicated to someone named Theophilus, uh, which means lover of God. So whether that's his actual name or that's a code name for a particular person who was beloved by God or loved God, uh, we don't really know. But Theophilus, both books uh, are dedicated to him uh, originally. And then the content flows really well from the end of Luke into the beginning of Acts. So look there, again, if you're in uh, the final part of Luke Luke 24, verse 50, says, Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, this is Jesus, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Now, if you turn straight from there, skip over the book of John, and then go to the book of Acts, And you'll see the book of Acts begins with the ascension. So the very place that uh, Luke's gospel ends is where the book of Acts picks up. Uh, And then a final sort of uh, evidence that these are written by the same author is the fact that uh, although Luke is mentioned in a number of the the Pauline epistles as being someone who was traveling uh, with Paul, he's never mentioned in the book of Acts. So even in journeys that we know that he was with Paul, Uh, Paul, you see language uh, such as we, but we don't actually see Luke's name. And so all of these reasons would lead us to to conclude that the author of one is the author of the other. And the purpose of the book is, according to Acts 1, 1 through 2, moving from all that Jesus began to do and teach, that's what the gospel of Luke is, from all that Jesus began to do and teach, to how these implications how this reality, the reality of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ has created these ripples throughout uh, the empire, throughout the Roman Empire. That's what the book of Acts is going to the, the book of Luke is going to say, this is what happened. This is the pebble that's dropped into the pond. And the book of Acts is then going to record the ripples as they uh, go out. And the movement of the book, if you look at uh, Acts 1.8, I have the second half of it up here on the board. 
It says, you will receive power. Again, this is Acts 1.8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And so you'll notice there, there's a number of places that are mentioned. Jerusalem, which is what? What is Jerusalem? It's a city, right? What's Judea? It's, it's, like a, it's like a state or a county or something like that. It's the area in which Jerusalem is. So uh, Israel is broken up into three different sections. You have Judea, which is the southern. You have Galilee, which is the northern. And in between the two, you have uh, Samaria. So Judea is basically the kind of the countryside, the county, the state in which Jerusalem is. So you see this, the, the, the ripples kind of going out from Jerusalem, which is the center, the heart of uh, the capital city, moving out through the county, through the state, and so forth, into Samaria, moving a little bit uh, north, and then to the ends of the earth. You see, again, this, this idea of these ripples. Not only is this the testimony that Jesus gives about what the apostles are going to accomplish when they receive power, that is, the promise of the Holy Spirit, but this is going to then function as an outline for the rest of the book. So Acts 1 through 7, chapters 1 through 7, all are taking place in Jerusalem. And then you have a transition there from the end of 7 into verse 8. What begins to happen there in the, the, chapter of, uh, the, the beginning of chapter 8 is you have this persecution. And as a result of the persecution, the, uh, the gospel is going to spread out not only from uh, Jerusalem, but it's going to now go into Judea and to uh, Samaria. So chapters 8 and 9 are dealing entirely with the gospel going out within the Judean countryside and to the people of Samaria. And then you're going to have another transition there in chapter 10 where the gospel is going to then begin to go out to the Gentiles, that is to the ends of the earth. So again, this book is going to function not only as kind of a theological uh, grid for understanding the book, but also a geographical grid for understanding it as chapters 1 through 7 take place in Jerusalem, chapters 8 and 9 in Judea and Samaria, and then 10 throughout the rest is the gospel going forth to the end of the earth. One really interesting thing, I think this is absolutely fascinating, about chapter 10, this transition as, as Peter is going to, for the first time, proclaim the good news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. This happens there in chapter 10. Anybody know what city that takes place in? You want to flip over to Acts chapter 10, you can look it up. At Caesarea, that's where he's going to go, but where's Peter at at the beginning of it? He's in a city called Joppa, all right? So Peter's in a city called Joppa. He'll actually end up He'll actually end up there in, uh, in Caesarea, but uh, at the beginning he's in Joppa. Now there is a, a famous Old Testament story. I'm not even moving. There's a famous Old Testament story that takes place in, uh, in the city of Joppa. Anybody remember what that is? Yeah, Jonah, all right? And, uh, and why does Jonah go to Joppa? Well, he, he goes to Joppa because he wants to avoid going where? Nineveh, all right? And why does he want to avoid going to Nineveh? Because he doesn't want to proclaim God's message of repentance to the Gentiles. So he flees, Jonah flees to Joppa in order to avoid taking the message uh, of uh, God's grace and the message of repentance to the Gentiles. What happens here in Acts chapter 10? Peter is in Joppa. He flees Joppa. Why? In order to take the gospel to the Gentiles. So it's kind of an inversion of the message of Jonah here. And, uh, and the rest of the book is going to kind of begin to wrestle with this idea that we see the, the, the sort of the, the seeds being laid in chapter 10 as the church is going to wrestle through how are we as Christians, and especially how are first century Jewish Christians, to relate to Gentiles that are coming into the church as the gospel is going out, not only to the Jews, but now to the Gentiles. And I think Zach, I think it's next week, we'll talk uh, in more detail about uh, how 
those ideas relate and how the early church wrestled through that idea. So let's talk a little bit about some of the themes of the book of, uh, of Acts, and then I want us to do an exercise together. So as we look at the book of Acts, there are a number of themes that are going to be developed. One of them is the, the idea of speeches. Speeches and sermons make up almost 30% of the book of Acts. So if you're reading the book of Acts, you'll notice time after time after time after time, it's not uh, as much emphasizing action as it is, although the book is called Acts, as it is emphasizing testimony, preaching, the proclamation of the word. Again, sermons and speeches make up about a third of the book. You also have this theme that runs throughout the book of God's sovereignty. You have statements like in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4 where the apostles are, are preaching and they talk about how God has ordained the death of his son. But this was not plan B. This is not take God by surprise. God didn't take something bad and make it good. That he ordained and orchestrated this from the foundation of the world. Not only that, but you have all of these really more subtle evidences of God's sovereignty. Take, for example, Paul's second missionary journey. So on Paul's first missionary journey, he kind of makes a loop throughout the empire proclaiming the gospel. On his second missionary journey, his intent is very intentional in what he's trying to do. He says, I want to go back to the churches that I've planted, and I want to encourage them. That's what I want to do. It's been a year. It's been two years, three years, however long it's been since I've been to those places. So I want to go back to them, and, uh, and I want to encourage them in the Word. I want to see how they're doing and, uh, and, and give them uh, some encouragement. And so he begins to do that. He begins to make the exact same journey that he had made before until all of a sudden there is this Macedonian call. There's this call where he hears the voice of the Lord telling him, don't go where you're planning on going. Instead, come this way. And, uh, and so he departs from his original plan and he goes. And uh, in the, the context of this new journey that he's taken... Not in any way what he had originally intended to do. He's going to end up establishing churches in Philippi, in Thessalonica, in Corinth, and in Ephesus. Think about how encouraging that is, that as a result of God's sovereign call, as a result of God interrupting Paul's plans, we actually have now the establishment of these four churches that actually happen to be four of the canonical letters uh, that Paul writes. So not, if without this call, not only would these churches not have been established, but we wouldn't have half of our Pauline corpus. So again, you just have these themes of sovereignty over and over that God ultimately is in charge. Even though the Romans are uh, persecuting, even though the Jews are persecuting the early church, that still God is ruling and reigning and in control over all things. And uh, another theme you have the last theme that we'll look at, then we'll do an exercise together, is the theme of universality. That the gospel is spreading not only horizontally or geographically, but it's spreading vertically. It's spreading vertically across any social status, any sort of barriers, any socioeconomic or political climate, whatever it might be. The gospel is going to spread throughout those. So flip over to Acts 16. I want to see this together. Acts 16, right after this Macedonian call. Apologize for my mic. In Acts 16, they are in um, Philippi. Or they're moving into Philippi after the Macedonian call. And, uh, and then you have in verses uh, 11... Through 15, you have the conversion of Lydia. And how's that described? Look in, uh, in verse 14. How's her conversion described? Yeah, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention uh, to what was uh, said by uh, Paul. So the Lord opens her heart. Again, this, this idea of sovereignty. As we'll see in a, in a few weeks, we talk about election, spiritual election, not the political election. But as we talk about election, 
you'll see this is the reality of your experience as well, whether you describe it as that or not. This is what's happened to you. If you love and trust Jesus Christ, what happened to Lydia has happened to you. The Lord has opened your heart to pay attention uh, to the things, to understand the things, to yearn for the things, to pursue the things uh, of Him. And so this is what happens to Lydia. And then immediately after that, you have uh, the conversion uh, or the deliverance of a slave girl. There's a slave girl, and she has a spirit of divination. She's a fortune teller, and, uh, and, and so she's got this, uh, she's been uh, oppressed by a demon. And, uh, and so the, her owners are upset at the reality that the demon is cast out of her, and no longer is she profitable to them. And, uh, and so the apostles are put into prison as a result. There is this cosmic divine earthquake that takes place. And uh, as a result of this, the jailer ends up being uh, converted, and, uh, and his entire household is converted as well. And, uh, and then, uh, so you have in this account, just this one city, the city of Philippi, you have the conversion of a woman, you have the conversion of a slave, you have the conversion of a Gentile. What's really fascinating, if you're a first century Jewish rabbi, you were known to have a consistent prayer. We found this uh, through archaeological studies and so forth, that one of the consistent prayers of an of upstanding Jewish rabbi or an upstanding Jewish man was, God, I thank you. I thank you that you have not made me a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. And in this passage uh, in particular, you have the conversion of all three. Again, showing that these things that, uh, that the, were being exalted in the world's eyes are being pressed down by the reality of the gospel going forth. Not only that, not only do you, do you have uh, the, the, the woman, the slave, and the Gentile that are all being saved, but you have various socioeconomic class. Lydia is this seller of purple fabric, which was a, a fabric of luxury. She's probably uh, quite affluent. You have a slave, and you have this blue-collar uh, jailer as well. The gospel is going through. It transcends all of these uh, not only political and uh, geographical uh, barriers, but all of these cultural barriers uh, as well. Uh, if you were to go out on the street and you were to just ask random people, you go out to uh, the town square or something like that, and just ask random people, what is the gospel? You're going to get a lot of just kind of God is love, general, vague, kind of Oprah-esque spirituality uh, sort of thing. You know how many times the love of God is mentioned in a sermon in the book of Acts? Zero. Now, does that mean that God is not loving? Absolutely not. God is love, and God is loving. That is not, though, the message that the, the apostles are proclaiming as they go forth in their work of missions. Instead, what they are proclaiming in particular are two things, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and as a result of the resurrection, the need for repentance. In fact, that will be the primary message that we see developed over and over and over. Uh, Zach's actually preaching uh, again uh, this week, and uh, he's going to preach from the book of Acts. And we'll see those two themes, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the call to repentance, there at the end of of uh, what uh, Paul is going to proclaim. And, uh, and so this is the message of the book of Acts, that the apostles are preaching the resurrection and uh, repentance. The, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is going to be this historical reality that's going to demand a response. And the response that is demanded is the response of repentance. What happens is in the resurrection, the claims and the person and the, the rightful rule and reign and authority of Jesus Christ is going to be validated. And as a result of that, uh, there is going to be this call, this call towards repentance. That, that resurrection is going to, in, in a sense, be this uh, legal badge, this shield that he has as a validation, a verification of his authority. And, uh, and so, as we look at resurrection as it's developed throughout the book, I'm going to read over a number of passages really quickly uh, if you're interested in, uh, in these for your notes or something like that. Email me and I can uh, send you a list, but I'll read them really quickly. Resurrection is one of the primary messages of the book of Acts. 
It is a requirement for apostleship in chapter 1, verse 22. It's the primary message of Pentecost, chapter 2. It's uh, what Paul or Peter preaches at the portico in chapter 3. It's what's proclaimed before the, uh, the Jewish council in chapter 4. It's the summary as he summarizes his apostolic message in chapter 4 as well. When Peter gives another defense in front of the council, he talks about the resurrection in chapter 5. It's uh, implicit when Stephen says he sees the ascended Lord in chapter uh, 7. It's what uh, is proclaimed to Cornelius in chapter 10 as the gospel goes forth to Gentiles. It's what Paul preaches in Antioch in chapter 13, what he preaches in Thessalonica in chapter 17, what he preaches in Athens is chapter 17. Uh, it's, what, uh, it's why Paul claimed to be on trial, his defense before Felix, his explanation, uh, and his defense before Agrippa. On and on you could go. This is, if you go through and you read uh, the book of Acts, I did this uh, at one point when I was in seminary. I read through the book of Acts just looking for the word resurrection or resurrected or anything that is implicit uh, of that same idea. And I marked it with a green highlighter, I think it was. And I found by the end that there was not a single page in the book of Acts as I flipped through that didn't have green markings on it because it's the, the primary message. So what is it that's so important about the resurrection? I think Zach developed that a little bit uh, in uh, his teaching last week as it relates to the resurrection of Jesus. And that being a mark then, a first fruits of our own resurrection, which is what I'm actually preaching on next week from Mark chapter uh, 12, where the, uh, uh, the, San, the, the Sadducees tried to trick uh, Jesus with a question about the resurrection. So not only does the resurrection kind of validate that Jesus is the Christ, it is also going to secure our own resurrection as the first fruits. And it's also going to serve as a historical substantiation for the claims of Jesus. This is one of the things that is most unique about Christianity among all the world religions. So think of all the other world religions, and every single one of them, when you go back far enough, you're going to have to, at the end of the day, just take one person's word for it. One person's word for it. That's all you have. And there's no substantiation, there's no verification, there's no validation whatsoever of what that person says. So, so think of uh, Mormonism. Mormonism is founded upon the idea that Joseph Smith has this vision, and in this vision, a, a, an angel appears to him and gives him this sort of new revelation uh, of how the gospel is now to go forth within uh, America and so forth. But it's completely founded upon just his isolated experience. Same thing with uh, Islam. Islam is founded upon Muhammad being in a cave, having a vision, and as a result of that vision, he actually goes home and he tells his wife, I think that I've seen a demon. That's what Muhammad says to his wife. And his wife convinces him, no, it's not a demon, it's actually Allah, it's actually God. And, uh, and so Islam, again, it's founded upon just one man's experience. The same thing with Buddhism, and on and on you could go. Christianity alone has this historical uh, foundation has this point in time that you can look at as a historical substantiation of the claims. And not only is it just one person witnessing it, but it's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people that are witnessing, bearing witness to uh, the resurrection. So as a result of the resurrection, there is this call throughout the book of Acts, throughout the gospel, for a response of uh, repentance. Repentance is the message of Jesus. We've talked about this before. Mark 1, 14 through 15. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. There's this call. As a result of the kingdom, there's this call to repent. It's the message of the apostles. After uh, they preach at Pentecost, the crowd shouts out, what shall we do to be saved? They say, repent. Repent and be baptized. In chapter 3, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be uh, blotted out. At the end of, of uh, Acts 17 that, that uh, Zach is going to be preaching later, the times of ignorance uh, God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all of us by raising him from the dead. 
So what is repentance? If repentance is the response to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, what is repentance? Well, the word literally means uh, to have a change, a change of, it's metanoeo, it's a, it's a change, and it's a change of mind, it's a change of perspective, it's a change of way of, of thinking, the literal meaning, again, a change of mind. It is, if you will, kind of the other side of the coin of faith. So think about a, a coin. A coin has two sides, heads and tails. That's what faith and repentance are. Sometimes you might have heard the gospel proclaimed in such a way as to divide faith and repentance as though those are two separate actions. When I think biblically, they are just two sides of the exact same coin. So think about it like this. Right now I'm facing you, but if I turn this way, I did only one turn, just turning this way. I both turned towards the old stained glass there, and I turned away from you. But I just turned one time. That's what faith and repentance is. Repentance is turning away from something. Faith is turning towards something. But it's this exact same act. So again, sometimes you, you might hear these two things as being uh, divisible, these two things as being separate. I grew up uh, hearing that you could have Jesus as your Savior, but not as your Lord. That doesn't make any sense in light of the gospel being the message of the kingdom. If, if, uh, if the gospel is the message of the kingdom, then how in the world can you embrace the gospel if you don't embrace the king? That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. It doesn't make any sense to say, I can both turn towards this and somehow not turn away from you. In the same way, you can't turn towards Jesus and not turn away from sin. Not perfectly, but there is absolutely this necessity of repentance in our, uh, our faith. And so there is this, um, there's this sense in which, although uh, it is imperfect and incomplete, in fact, uh, Martin Luther is the, the first of his theses, is that all of life is, is repentance. It's not some one-time act, just like faith is not some one-time act. It's a lifelong, continual, progressive uh, habit that is developed and cultivated uh, by the Holy Spirit as returning from sin, as we find Jesus more delightful than we find sin less delightful when we turn more toward him and less toward uh, it. And uh, so in light of this kingdom motif of the New Testament, if you were to describe repentance through these kingdom terms, I would do it similar to, if you remember uh, Zach quoted some uh, fancy Greek phrase whenever he was talking about the kingdom of God. It was a phrase that uh, Josephus used whenever he came as a, as a messenger or ambassador of the Romans and came to his fellow Jews and called them and basically said, you're surrounded. Jerusalem is surrounded. There is no escape. You cannot escape from uh, the Roman Empire. And so in light of that, lay down your weapons. That's what repentance is in light of the kingdom. You are surrounded. There is no hope. You have no hope of winning against God. Your only hope is lay down your weapon. Lay down the things that you use to offend God and simply trust him. Simply trust that he will be merciful to you. Simply trust that he will not stab you in the back when you lay down your weapons. That's what repentance is. Lay down your weapons and trust him. You are completely surrounded. There's no hope except this offer that you have of pardon. So, we talked about the resurrection and how the resurrection demands a response of repentance and that this was the, the message of the apostles. They're functioning as witnesses to the reality of the resurrection. So, let's talk a little bit about who the apostles were. So, in order to do that, first let's, let's talk about why there are no apostles uh, today. Why there are no apostles today? Now, to be fair, there are, uh, there's a general use of the word uh, apostles, and then there is a more narrow use of the word uh, apostles. All right? Technically, the word apostle just means one who is sent. So there's a sense in which, uh, and you see that little root word there, post, like post office, something that is sent, a message that is sent. So an apostle is just one who is sent. So in a sense, everyone in this room has been sent. If you love and trust Jesus, you've been sent on mission in order to proclaim him to your neighbors, to your co-workers, so forth. Zach's going to talk about that in the sermon uh, today. So there's absolutely a sense in which we're all apostles, but there's this narrower sense 
in which none of us are apostles. There's this very specific technical sense. The same way that if I were to ask you, are you, are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? You would say yes. But are you a disciple of Jesus Christ in the exact same way that Matthew was or Peter was? You would say no. In the same way, there's a sense in which you're an apostle. There's a sense in which there are no more apostles. I think it's more confusing Whenever someone says that they're an apostle, I think that person probably belongs in a psych ward or something like that, uh, because the meaning, the biblical meaning of an apostle, uh, as it's uh, used most often throughout the Scripture, is, uh, is one who has been a witness to uh, the ministry of Jesus, one who has been a witness to the resurrected Lord, and one who has been personally commissioned by the Lord uh, Himself. Those are the requirements of an apostle, that he accompanied the disciples throughout Christ's earthly ministry. We see that in Acts chapter 1, if you want to flip over to that. We'll see that real quickly. Acts 1, the, the apostles are, not only the apostles, but uh, the, the entire group of 120 or so disciples are gathered in the upper room, and, uh, and they realize they need to uh, replace uh, Judas, uh, who has died, and, uh, and so um, they set forward a couple of people. And these were the requirements according to verse 21 of chapter 1. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, in other words, this person must have been a witness to the ministry of Jesus, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, uh, so, in other words, he had to have also witnessed Jesus in his resurrected form. One of these men must fun- become with us a witness to his resurrection. That's the function of an apostle, to be a personal witness to the resurrection. Not just a witness, not the way that you and I might use the word testimony. When I give a testimony, I'm not testifying to the fact that I actually saw the resurrected Jesus. I'm giving a testimony to the fact that uh, the, the resurrection power has regenerated my life, that my life has been changed as a result of my encounter with Jesus Christ. That's not the testimony that these uh, apostles were giving. The apostles were giving a testimony uh, regarding their seeing, they're actually seeing the resurrected Lord. That's what they are bearing witness to. So those are the first two requirements of an apostle, that he accompanied the disciples throughout Christ's earthly ministry, and that he was a witness uh, to Christ's uh, resurrection. And then last of all, that he be commissioned by Christ himself. He be commissioned uh, by uh, Christ himself. So how many uh, were there? You certainly have the original 11 uh, plus Matthias who's put forward here in Acts chapter 1. Paul's called an apostle, Barnabas and James, uh, the brother of Jesus. Beyond that, we don't really know although there were a group of about 500 people who had seen him in his resurrected body and, uh, and therefore could potentially have qualified uh, to be uh, a, an apostle. Uh, but we don't really know beyond uh, the original 11, Matthias, Paul, Barnabas, and, uh, and James. And their responsibility, again, is to bear witness, to testify to the reality of the resurrection, which was why it's so important for them to be actual witnesses and, uh, and why there are no apostles uh, today. And they carried this unique function as ambassadors of the kingdom. That's what the lesson's even called today, ambassadors of the kingdom. Uh, they were uh, ones who were sent out with the authority of the king in order to proclaim the reality. As in the Old Testament, we see these messengers that are sent out and the prophets and so forth, and they're bearing witness to the coming kingdom the apostles now are sent out bearing witness to the fact that the kingdom has already come and in another sense is coming uh, again. And they carry this unique ambassadorial uh, authority and responsibility. And even though you and I might not have that same uh, authority and responsibility, there is a sense in which we have a similar task. That is, again, that we, we bear witness not to the, the reality of having seen the resurrected Lord, but to having seen the power of the resurrection in our own lives as our hearts have been confronted by the reality of, of Christ. So we've talked about uh, almost everything on that list in terms of the themes. We've talked about the apostles. We've talked about what repentance is. 
the importance of witness and testimony, the importance of the resurrection. Let's end our time talking a little bit about the Holy Spirit. We talked about Him in regards to His deity as it related to Trinitarianism, but now talking more about just His role within the life of the early church. The Holy Spirit, He was, uh, he was called the Forgotten God by, uh, by Francis Chan. Francis Chan wrote a book called The Forgotten God, just kind of talking about how in a lot of contexts you have the Holy Spirit completely neglected. Right? Then you have other contexts where the Holy Spirit seems to be the only member of the Godhead that gets any honor whatsoever. The Father, the Son, they get completely neglected, and it's just about the Spirit, hyper-charismatic sort of context and so forth. What we want to do is we want to avoid either of those uh, extremes. We don't want to in any way exalt the Spirit to the neglect of the Father and the Son, uh, but we also don't want to neglect the Spirit. Uh, we want to hold well, again, that idea of tension, that tug of war uh, that we find within uh, good theological uh, exercises and so forth. So flip over to John 14 real quickly. John 14, you have these little hints of Trinitarianism. Uh, Verse 5, Thomas said to Jesus, Lord, uh, we do not know the way you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So you have Father and Son there. And then in verse 16, he talks about another helper. And I will ask the Father, and he will give to you another helper That's the word uh, paraclete. He'll give you another helper, counselor, comforter, and so forth, to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. So this is the one that the the Son is going to send. And according to chapter 16, if you flip over there, chapter 16, verse 7, Jesus says this really fascinating thing about the Holy Spirit. He says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, again, 16, 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. You ever thought about that passage, the meaning of that passage? It's to your advantage that I go away. If you were to ask me, be honest, just for a moment, be vulnerable with you. If you were to ask me, would you rather have the Holy Spirit and your current understanding of the Holy Spirit and current experience of the Holy Spirit or have Jesus in the flesh, right next to you, which would you prefer? I would say, I would prefer to have Jesus. And yet Jesus says, it's to your advantage that I go away. There's something that is better even for us, at least in this period of time. Eschatologically, in the end, we know we will be with Jesus forever. But at least in this period, it's better for us that he goes away. And, uh, and the reason... He's going to expound upon this in 2 Peter uh, chapter 1. If you want to flip over there, you can. You don't have to. But in 2 Peter, uh, Peter is going to uh, talk about... Um, he's going to uh, talk about chap- uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. We did not follow cleverly devised uh, myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, and we were with him on the holy mountain. So he's talking here about the transfiguration. Peter, obviously one of the witnesses to the transfiguration. That's what he's talking about here. But then he says something uh, really interesting. Verse 19, And we have something more sure, the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention. And then he goes on to qualify that what he's talking about is Scripture in verse 20, knowing there's no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. And so in other words, it is better for Jesus to go away because as a result of Jesus going away, you have the Holy Spirit who is going to then inspire Scripture. There is this importance, this 
this, uh, this precedent that is placed upon uh, the, the priority of uh, the Scripture, the authority and inspiration of the Scripture. That's one of the primary responsibilities and roles of the Holy Spirit is to inspire the Scripture, to give us this infallible Word so that when the apostles have died, as they all have, we have something more sure now. We're not dependent upon, we don't need someone to stand up in the pulpit and say, I am an apostle. I don't want anybody to stand up in the pulpit and say, I'm an apostle. Instead, we have them stand up and say, this is the apostolic word. This is the apostolic deposit. This is what the, uh, the apostles were uh, testifying uh, to. And so it's to our advantage that Jesus goes away in order that the Spirit might come, in order that we might have this infallible Word, because we are fallible creatures, and it's entirely possible for us to mistake the voice of the Spirit. Even if we walked with the Lord for 60, 70, 80 years, there's still a possibility. Yes, it's true that, uh, that Jesus' sheep hear His voice, but we don't hear it perfectly. We, uh, we, we are fallible in our interpretation of it, but the Word is infallible, so it's to our advantage that we have this. If we were to, to try to, to list out all the advantages of the Spirit, if we were to try to list out all the responsibilities of the Spirit within the Godhead and so forth, uh, it would take us forever. So instead, I, I just want to spend the rest of our time just talking about something a little bit more, uh, Zach would call it spicy, he likes to use that word, just something a little bit more controversial, and that is the idea of spiritual gifts. Flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 for a minute. Because this is one of the primary roles of the Spirit is for the apportioning and appointing of spiritual gifts. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 through 14, probably the, the best section if you want to know kind of a theology of the charismata, of the spiritual gifts, this would be the place to go. There's also Ephesians 4 and 1 Peter and a number of other places where uh, the apostles are going to outline uh, the, <clears throat> the gifts. But 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, probably the primary place for us in our understanding of the gifts. Starting in verse 4, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of, of, of activities, <clears throat> but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. So you have this, this idea that there is unity and diversity, that we all have the same Spirit, we all worship the same Lord, we all have the same Father, and yet we have different gifts. Some of you are much more equipped uh, in regards to a life full of prayer. Some of you are much more equipped as it relates to hospitality and generosity and faith and uh, on and on we could go. But the purpose of the gifts is they're given for the edification of the body. Verse 7, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. That's the purpose of the gifts. And the irony uh, of the, the Corinthian church is that the people in the church in Corinth were using the gifts for the exaltation of self rather than giving preference to others, rather than doing that which was best for the body. So they were using the gifts, they were abusing the gifts for an improper purpose. The purpose is to, given, to be given for the edification of the body. And they're for everybody, that everyone is gifted with certain gifts to various degrees. No one possesses all of the gifts. That's clear from Verses 27 through 31, um, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues? Those are all rhetorical questions that even in the Greek, the way that he asked the question, uh, you can tell that he, he is expecting a negative answer from that. The answer is no. Uh, not everybody has every gifts and so forth. And so some of you might have been exposed to uh, really charismatic teaching that says in order to be a believer, you have to speak in tongues. Paul explicitly says not everybody speaks in tongues. That's not a sign of faith. 
In fact, you can speak in tongues and not be a believer. Um, but uh, uh, speaking in tongues, just one of the, the, the various gifts that are uh, mentioned here. And what's really fascinating is we tend, to, we tend to think, when we think of the gifts, we tend to think of the miraculous gifts, but that's not the emphasis within the Scripture. The, the Scripture doesn't emphasize the miraculous gifts like tongues and, uh, and, uh, and miracles and prophecy and so forth, although those are certainly in there. It tends to emphasize more of the mundane things. There's not a week that goes by that you come into this building that you don't see the gifts being exercised. Gifts of teaching, gifts of worship, gifts of service, people getting here early and making coffee, and all of those things are gifts. They're gifts of the Spirit that He has given to the body so that we might be edified and uh, encouraged. So there's this unfortunate downplaying of gifts. I remember in my previous church, um, I, there were a number of people who I would, uh, I would see as a, a group's pastor, and, uh, and they would say, I don't have a place to exercise my gifts. I said, absolutely you do. You may not have a, what, what they had thought in their mind is they had a particular gift that they wanted to exercise in a particular way. So I have the gift of teaching, and so I need to be on a pulpit. That's the way that I exercise my gift. Instead of understanding, I'll just go start my own Bible study. I'll go meet with coworkers and, and, and uh, work through Ephesians with them or whatever it might be. So there, there tends to be this downplaying of certain gifts or this exaltation of other gifts that we want to avoid. I want to end just talking about probably the, the most controversial aspect as it relates to uh, the gifts, and, uh, and that is uh, the topic of are the gifts active today, especially as it relates to the miraculous gifts. And so if you will, think of a spectrum, and on that spectrum you have a view called cessationism. And then on the other side you have charismaticism. All right? Cessationism and charismaticism, which I don't know if that's an actual word, but um, so you have this, this spectrum. On this end you have those who would believe the gifts have absolutely ceased. On this end, you have those who would say, not only have they not ceased, but everybody needs every gift or whatever it might be. You have to speak in tongues. Uh, you, I mean, think, think TBN or think the people who have the snakes in their services and so forth. And that's that end of the spectrum where I think that the Bible would position us as somewhere in, uh, in the middle. Uh, and uh, what I've heard a helpful term for that is just continuationism. The idea that the gifts have continued, they haven't ceased, but certainly we're not drinking poison and handling snakes and everybody talking in tongues disorderly and, uh, and so forth. The reason that I think that the gifts, though, have continued, the reason that I would avoid this, even though my alma mater is, is a big proponent of this view, where I went to seminary, uh, expounded this view. The reason that I think that that is wrong is for a few reasons. First, um, kind of the, the, one of the primary arguments that they would make was just this historical assessment that we see this drop in recorded incidences of the, uh, of the miraculous gifts after the death of the uh, last apostles. But that doesn't mean that all, this, all that is going to demonstrate is that in some times and some places, the Spirit is going to use certain gifts more than in others. That doesn't in any way mean that the gifts have ceased altogether. Another reason that many would use to promote this idea that the gifts have ceased is they just appeal to experience. I haven't experienced it, and therefore uh, it doesn't exist. But that's not a logical argument. I'll be honest with you. I haven't experienced uh, the, uh, the miraculous gifts, but I'm not driven by my experience, whether I have or have not experienced something. I'm driven by the text. What does the text say? And the primary text that, uh, that we would look at uh, for this passage or for this topic would be in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, if you want to look there at the end. Verse 8, 
Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been uh, fully known. So the, uh, the passage does talk about there will be a time when tongues will cease. There will be a time when prophesy, prophecy uh, will cease. But when is that? What are the temporal sort of clues that he gives for when that is going to happen? When the perfect comes, when the partial passes away, when we see face to face, and when we know fully. And, uh, and so those on this side would, would argue that, uh, that all of those things were accomplished in the death of the last apostle or the giving of Scripture. That, to me, does not sound like those things are going to be accomplished uh, today. That doesn't sound like I could not describe my experience or your experience of Christianity as the perfect having come and the partial passing away and seeing Jesus face to face and knowing fully, and uh, and so forth. So, in uh, in coming weeks, we'll we'll expound upon this more. I think we'll probably have some more uh, conversation about it. But I just wanted, uh, for the sake of our time together today, just to kind of prime that pump a little bit and talking through one of the roles of the Spirit as regards to uh, giving uh, the gifts and equipping the church for uh, the work of ministry. I'm going to pray for us, and then we will uh, transition into Q&A, and I'm sure that will be quite fun. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for the, uh, the reality of the death and resurrection of your son and for the promise of his soon return, and pray that he would uh, come quickly. That's our hope, and that's our prayer, that you would make us a people who are ready for his soon return. So thank you for the book of Acts, the things that we see in it, the work of your apostles to plant churches, the work of your spirit to give us uh, this book through which we can see the person and work of your son. And may he reign and rule in our hearts and on this earth more and more. We pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We ask because you're a good father and you give good gifts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.